0: We expect a lot from our homes. They're more than a place to hang your hat. They're where you try your hand at gardening and new recipes, where you rest and recharge, where you work and play. And that's why at Home Advisor, we're committed to keeping your home up and running. Whether you need to repair an overloaded appliance or you're looking to create a backyard retreat worthy of a summer staycation, use the Home Advisor app day or night and we'll find a local pro to get the job done right. Whatever you need, we'll do everything to fix your, well, everything. Download the Home Advisor app to get started.
1: Root of Evil is a production of C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, in partnership with TNT. This story contains strong language and graphic and potentially disturbing content. Discretion is advised.
2: The location we're at here is 5121 Franklin Avenue, and it's right at the northwest corner of Franklin and
3: Normandy in Hollywood. This is our great uncle, Steve Hodell. He's standing outside the historic Soudin House in Hollywood, but our family has always called it the Franklin House. It was built in 1926 by Lloyd Wright, the son of legendary architect Frank Lloyd Wright. And this was our family
2: home from 1946, and we were here until 1950. My father was always interested in the unique and different, and certainly this house qualifies in that regard. I mean, it does kind of have a, an ominous look to it, that's for sure. I mean, it, it looks foreboding, but also it looks like a Hollywood set. It looks like something, you know, what the hell is this? So I think a number of emotions would be evoked from your average Joe citizen walking by. It's so different from anything in the neighborhood, but it's also so private and so closed and secret. I think most people would have a negative or a dark reaction looking at this. It's foreboding. In
3: 1949, our grandmother, Tamar Hodel, was 14 years old and her mother, Dorothy Barb, sent her to live in this house with her half-brothers, Steve, Kelly, and Michael, and their father, George Hodell.
2: One of the interesting things was, in regards to Tamar, my half-sister, when she was staying here, you see this front here, and she would uh, be nude, and she would come out and sit on this ledge completely nude, and she would pretend she's a statue passerby's walking by would look up, and they'd stare, and then she'd move, and they'd go in the house. Then, of course, Dad, later on, would say, no more nude sunbathing, I think the police are watching me now.
1: Crank up that radio. Let me tell y'all a story.
4: On previous episodes, you heard about our mom, Fauna Hotel and her journey to find her real mother, Tamar Hodel. She'd imagined that she came from a family of rich, powerful, and respected members of Los Angeles society. But then, when she finally found Tamar, she learned that her grandfather was investigated in the Black Dahlia murder. But she was also told something else about her family. Something even more shocking. Something that's still difficult for our family to come to grips with. 70 years later.
3: On this episode, life inside the Franklin House in 1949, and the moment that would change the course of our family forever. Welcome to Root of Evil, the true story of the Hodel family and the Black Dahlia. I'm Yvette, and I'm her sister, Rasha, and we're your hosts.
5: Every night they come to dream of her. Every night they come to dream of her.
0: We expect a lot from our homes. They're more than a place to hang your hat. Your home is where you try your hand at gardening and new recipes, rest and recharge, work and play. And that's why at Home Advisor we're committed to keeping your home up and running no matter what. From the projects that creep up on you, like appliance repairs, gutter cleanings and faucet fixes, to the ones you look forward to, like creating your very own backyard retreat worthy of a summer staycation, we'll find local pros to help you get the job done right. Use the HomeAdvisor app, day or night, to get matched with the best pros for your projects. You can book and pay for more than 100 projects with just a few taps. Plus, see the tasks trending in your neighborhood. Whether you need a last-minute fix, routine home maintenance, or an exciting new upgrade, HomeAdvisor is standing by, ready to do everything to fix your everything. Download the HomeAdvisor app today to get started.
1: I come from a very unusual family. And I didn't realize it was unusual until I got older. And I had a hard time relating to people when they wanted to say, you know, well, tell me about your family.
4: This is our great uncle, Kelly Hodell, Steve's younger brother by 11 months.
1: I can't say we had any warm, fuzzy moments with our father. Our father was kind of a cold, distant man. And I don't think he liked children very much. I'd seen it written in correspondence, I love you, but I don't remember actually hearing that from his words. I uh, feared him because I knew he was capable of just blowing up any minute. Michael had written on the walls in Crayola. And he got us together and he said, uh, who wrote on the wall in Crayola? And none of us would rat out the other. And so he said, I just want you to wait here because someone wants to talk to you. So he goes away and a few minutes later, we're all waiting for someone to talk to us. The intercom comes on and we hear this this is God. I want to know who wrote on the wall of Crayola. So that person may stay there and the others may leave. So Steve and I got the hell out of there, not wanting to uh, piss off God. And Mike sat there just kind of trembling, waiting for the wrath of God to come down upon
4: him. Here's Uncle Steve...
2: Children, this is God. You have five minutes to get ready and be out front, or you will be left behind. One of my favorite things with Dad back in those years was he had this really cool army jeep. And there was a vacant lot next to the house, and Dad would be driving, and he'd drive down the alley, and then he'd drive up onto this lot, and we'd go bumpity-bump-bump down the lot, off the curb. And then we'd drive on his house calls.
1: And he would sit us in the back of the car, and he would say, "Uh, I don't want you to move out of this seat. Do not get out of the car. And we would sit there for two, sometimes three hours, waiting for him to come back and for, you know... Little kids our age, that's very, very hard to do. And uh, he'd go out and he'd leave his medical bag there.
2: One day, he comes walking out with a very attractive young woman, arm in arm. And uh, they walked up to my side and, and the woman said, Oh, is this your son? She says, He's so beautiful. She says, Can I keep him? And I'm looking at Dad, of course, terrified. I don't want to be kept here. What? You know, I'm looking at Dad, and he kind of does one of these slow, well, mm, you know, and I'm afraid he's going to say yes. And he and he says, mm, not this time, maybe another time. And uh, she turns to him and says, well, thank you, doctor. She says, I feel so much better now. Thank you for the treatment.
1: And uh, he'd get in the car, and we'd drive off. So, you know, now as we think back about it, he was, you know, making sexual house calls. A nice recreational afternoon delight. (laughs) So that was uh, one of the ways he would take care of his
4: kids. Steve and Kelly's mom was named Dorothy Harvey. She'd married George in 1940. And to avoid any confusion with Tamar's mother's name, he'd given her a nickname... Dorero. It was a combination of the Greek terms doro, or gift, and eros, the god of erotic love. Dorero was George's gift for his sexual desires.
2: Mom told me once that Dad was talking to her at one point about how he was very kind of mystical and he had this theory that sex motivated everything. It was the power behind everything, like a gravitational force, and moved everything. You know, she'd go on talking about what she considered to be his strange ideas about desire and sex.
1: I always liked the name Dorero. I liked the way it sounded. I never knew actually what it meant until I just found out recently. She told me there was always a line of girls to my father's door that there were orgies that he would have her pick up girls for him she was bisexual but she would do it for George but I also felt she feared him she knew what he was capable of and didn't want to endanger us in any way he would take things out on our mother, and that disturbed me as a young boy. I never actually saw any physical
3: violence, but I felt that there had been. Dorero was beautiful, and she and George both liked women who were considered exotic at the time. Like Maddie Comfort, a gorgeous black woman who was a well-known jazz singer and model. In Maddie's unpublished memoir, which Uncle Steve found, she wrote in pretty graphic detail about George and Dorero teaching her how to satisfy a man. She also wrote about another side of George Hodel. This is a reading of an excerpt from Maddie Comfort's memoir. One morning, around 10 a.m. or so, I was lying in bed. And I hear this crash and Dorero crying. I ran into the bathroom. Dorero was in the bathtub crying. George, cool as you please, explains to me. is an alcoholic and has sneaked a drink. He was reprimanding her for her own good. I'm protesting. You could break her neck. George, I can't stand to see you knocking poor Dorero around like this. Please don't treat her like this. Meanwhile, I'm trying to pull Dorero out of the tub. We were all stark naked.
4: George and Dorero got divorced in 1946. But she and the kids continued to live in the Franklin house. Our grandmother, Tamar Hodel, would spend summers with her father and half-brothers from the time she was 11 years old. Then in 1949, when she was 14, she was sent by her mother to live full-time with George. By then, the Franklin House had become the party place for L.A.'s avant-garde. And at the time, nothing was more avant-garde than surrealist art.
6: Surrealism is, in the broadest sense, an art form that has its roots in the late 1920s to 30s in Europe, mainly France. And the basic tenet of it is that it arises from the dream world. This
4: is Neil Baldwin. Neil is an author and professor in the College of the Arts at Montclair State University.
6: A lot of the imagery is extremely precise and heightened and hyper real if you've ever noticed when you're having a dream you're in the dream but you don't see yourself and they tried to create that ambiance in the artwork so like you are part of a reality that is cranked up color wise image wise edge wise and it tries to at the same time, alienate you and bring you in. In a dream, you often feel like a story is being told. You know, well, I was walking down the street and then this guy came up to me and he was, had a, was wearing a, a cape and then I went into a, a bus and the bus drove off a cliff. And then I, you know, it's like I did this and I did this and I did it. And everything is like in and of itself has integral logic. But then when you string it all together, it doesn't make any sense.
4: Surrealism drew inspiration from Sigmund Freud and his book, The Interpretation of Dreams. Another big influence was the French writer, Marquis de Sade, who wrote about torturing and sexually abusing women and children. Sade is where the words sadism and sadistic come from
6: the role of women in surrealist art to me always was objectified and it was erotic but it wasn't with any warmth at all they were never cast in any kind of motherly or nourishing maternal role using women in the most reductive way Surrender is a big, erotic concept that would fit into the Surrealist vision of a woman. What women do is surrender. Then the way Surrealists depicted women as being in a position of surrender, it's about sexual surrender.
7: The
4: Surrealists were also heavy partiers. Work hard, play hard and they didn't let anything get in the way of either.
6: Surrealists frowned upon having kids. That was a very big deal with them, not having kids. They they were very open about that. They didn't want to be distracted by kids. The lifestyle was a lifestyle of extremes. I would say that categorically true. These were people with an incredibly high work ethic. But there were also, like, druggies, you know, opium, absinthe, staying up till 4 o'clock in the morning, smoking, drinking, pouring, s and you know, wearing collars with spikes in them and all kinds of stuff like that.
4: George's pals were 10-time Oscar nominee and Hollywood legend John Huston, who also happened to be Dorero's ex-husband. The famous surrealist photographer and painter, Man Ray, was also very close with George and took family photos of the hotels. Tamar told us he took nudes of her when she was 12 years old. And the writer, Henry Miller, was around too. His books were banned in the U.S. until the 1960s. In World of Sex, Miller wrote,
2: If it would help men to liberate themselves, I would recommend them to have intercourse with animals, or in public, or to commit incest, for example. There is nothing in itself which is wrong or evil, not even murder. It is the fear of doing wrong, the fear of committing murder, the fear of acting or expressing oneself, which is wrong.
4: These were George's friends, and they would party until the mornings. Kelly and Steve were little, but they can still picture it.
1: I remember hearing the laughter and the noise and sometimes screaming, which I didn't know whether it was in fear or just uh, intoxication or what it was. I do remember certain people at the house I was madly in love with a model by the name of Carol, and I kind of followed her around like a little puppy. Dad was
2: in a position of power. He was esteemed. He was the head of LA County Health Department. He was the VD control officer. He was large and in charge. And it was a place to gather in privacy and let your hair down. A lot of cocktail parties, drinking, a lot of laughter. A lot of sex went on, yes, but I never saw that I can remember any sexual acts occur.
3: But our grandmother, Tamar, was older than her brothers. She was 14, and George encouraged her to join the parties.
5: making love to people or photographs of them making love. You
3: know, I mean, that was how I grew up. That was part of life. That's Tamar. She's speaking about her father, George Hodel, during this time. This audio has never been heard. It was tucked away in the box of tapes we found in Mom's storage container after she died. The quality of the audio isn't very good, So we've done everything we can to enhance it. But we must warn you, this is very disturbing and very graphic.
5: He's had tremendous excellent, just tremendous. I remember there were about 19 women from the time when I was about 14. There were about 19 women who were in love with my father. You know, they were coming and going. You had to wait your turn to go in and talk to him. And uh, it wasn't that he was kind or loving, or anything in that way, but he was very charming. He had charm.
3: I should mention, the person who tomorrow is speaking to is my mom.
5: Well, he always has sexual things. He's one of those people who always makes sexual emulence with everything he says. Now, when you have a develop a girl who's developing her sexual interest, you know, that period of time, so, uh, naturally, I'm going to hear those things when I pick up on them. There was a period of time when he wasn't married to Guerrero that I would go in at night and we would read or talk or read poetry. I'd go in and spend time with him in the bedroom, and I felt so honored that I got to be in the great man, the king. <laughs> you know, and uh, I don't remember exactly. I'd have to really deep get down deep into it to remember how it was that he taught me to get him in, which he did, this is an honor that I got to do. I felt terrible that I got sick and gagged because because this was God. And I was fucking up. I was failing in my very first mission here. <laughs> and and uh, so he continued.
3: Tamara reached out to her mother for help and told her everything.
2: Well, She had told her mother about a sex act, an oral sex act, which she performed with her father. And incredibly, when dad, you know, dad's confronted with this by Dorothy Barb, Tamar's mother, his immediate response was, yeah, well, it's funny because she told me the exact same thing with you, that you and your grandmother had oral sex with her. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, that kind of a quick mind just jumps right back. So, of course mother, Dorothy never believed it. She thought that her daughter was making all of this up.
3: Tamar's mother never confronted George and George continued. The following is a verbatim reading of an excerpt from an interview that Steve Hodell did with Tamar in 2004 where she describes a get-together in 1949 that involved George's close friend Fred Sexton And a few women.
7: I was allowed in the bedroom. There was this session going on. He was hypnotizing this girl named Barbara, who I hadn't met before. Fred Sexton was there, and someone else was there. Someone I knew. Connie? I'm not sure. We watched with fascination all the hypnotism. I was given a drink, I don't know what, but I was given a drink, and I drank it. Pretty soon, and I I don't know why, I don't know what happened, but I was taking off my clothes, or my clothes were being taken off. And Fred Sexton was attempting to have sex with me. And that made George very angry, and he kicked him out of the room. Now, while this was going on, I felt as though I was looking down on myself from up high in the ceiling, I mean, I was in shock about everything that was going on. I can't explain to you what happened other than my consciousness left my body for a few moments. And then Connie, I think that was her name. I call her Connie, maybe Corrine, but I think she was called Connie, was in the room. She was upset with what was going on and there was just my father and I. And my father had sex with me. He had said when I was 16 this was going to happen and it was a privilege and I would become a woman. But it wasn't like that at all. I thought this was a very romantic thing that was going to happen, but no. And he felt angry, guilty, weird. My impression of his consciousness was entirely different, both while and after it was happening. I mean, I was probably in a lot of danger at that point, but I didn't know it. It just didn't feel right in any way, shape, or form, and it certainly wasn't what he had said was going to happen. Then I left the room, and it was maybe five in the morning by this time.
3: George told Tamar he was giving her a gift, that all of the pharaohs made love to their daughters, that this would be an honor for her, and she'd become a woman He had told his daughter that she'd received this gift when she was 16 years old. But Tamar was just 14 years old. And to make matters worse?
7: I became pregnant by my father. And he thought that was amusing. I didn't think it was amusing at all. I was scared. Because he said I had to go away somewhere and have this child. And I didn't want to go away anywhere.
4: Finally, George took matters into his own hands. As the venereal disease czar of Los Angeles, he knew who to go to for an illegal abortion. He'd given some himself. And so he set tomorrow up with a friend of his in an underground abortion ring.
7: So I went to have the abortion and I found out what an abortion was without any anesthetic... That was terrible, and I kept screaming for them to stop, but you cannot stop in the middle of an abortion. Afterward, I was sick. I was crying, and the person who had driven me there was to drive me home. I was nauseous, and I needed to throw up out the window. So he took me to his place, and he put down a rubber sheet on the bed because I was bleeding. And he raped me. Then he took me back to my father's. I told my father what had happened, and he was furious. Not so much at the rape, but that I might have become infected after having an abortion. His behavior just got more and more bizarre. By this time, even though I didn't know how the outside world was, I was being harmed and hurt so much that I didn't know what to do or where to turn. I told Dorero what had happened. She said, this has gone too far. You must leave. Run away. You must get out of here immediately.
4: Dorero told Tamar that if she stayed, her life would be in danger. That George was capable of anything. She told Tamar that George had killed his secretary. So Tamar ran away. After her mother found out she was missing, she urged George to call the LAPD. They found Tamar at a friend's house and took her to Juvenile Hall, where she became a ward of the court. Tamar told the detectives everything, including that she had received an illegal abortion and that her father was the one who got her pregnant. The following is a reading of an L.A. Times article printed on Friday, October 7, 1949, titled Dr. Face's Accusation in Morrill's Case.
8: Deputy District Attorney William L. Ritzy said the daughter ran away from home last Friday because her, quote, home life was too depressing. But she was found Sunday at the home of a friend. She is now held in Juvenile Hall. Both men and women figured in this series of bizarre parties, Ritzy said, Officers reported Dr. Hodel as a photography enthusiast and said they seized many questionable photographs and pornographic art objects at his home. Ritzy said the tall-moustache doctor said he was, quote, delving into the mystery of love and the universe and that the act of which he is accused are, quote, unclear, like a dream. I can't figure out whether someone is hypnotizing me or I am hypnotizing someone.
4: In late 1949, the incest trial began. The newspapers called it a morals trial, and it was a sensational story. A powerful doctor in Hollywood charged with having sex with his daughter and getting her pregnant. Even the New York Daily News wrote about it on October 30th, 1949, under the headline, Blonde, 14, Diagrams Hollywood Sex Orgy. It read in part,
8: Further details of a lurid Hollywood sex party in which no holds were barred will be aired Tuesday when Dr. George Hill Hodel goes on trial in Superior Court on charges of incest brought by his blonde 14-year-old daughter, Tamar Hodel. Tamar, whose parents are divorced, said she came home from a date one night in July to find Dr. Hodel hypnotizing beautiful, sultry, 22-year-old Barbara Sherman in a bedroom. "'My father and Barbara had their clothes off,' the poised 14-year-old observed." There were two other grown-ups present. She identified them as Fred Sexton, a friend of her father's, and Corrine Connie Tarrant. Connie, she said, didn't disrobe. Barbara helped take my clothes off. Until then, Tamar related, she and Sexton had been sitting on the bedroom floor. I was kissing him, she went on. Then Fred and I had normal intimate relations on the bed, nude. Tamar, continuing her testimony... Charged from the stand that her father later arranged an abnormal sex act between her and Barbara. Then she said Barbara left. Then, Tamar related, followed the event which led to her father's arrest. Indeed, Barbara Sherman, in her testimony, placed the time as Father's Day.
3: And then there was the witness testimony.
2: So they call the witnesses and, of course, they call Sexton. He doesn't actually admit that he had sex with her. He actually says that they were kissing and he tried to have sex with her but didn't penetrate her, which, of course, is a huge difference as far as the legality of it. So he testifies and confirms that the others were present and basically what Tamar said. And then Corrine testifies... And substantiates what happened, as Tamar said it did. And then Barbara Sherman refuses to testify. Now she's already given statements under oath at the preliminary hearing, but uh, recants that. I'm sure she was terrified. I'm sure George said, "If you say anything, you know, against me," and and she was she was intimate with George. Barbara was. And they'd had sex and they were boyfriend-girlfriend. So anyway, she refuses, and she's arrested for perjury, based on her former statements. You know, normally in an incest, you're not going to have any other witnesses other than the parent, you know, the father and the child.
4: So you can't lose this one. And then it was the defense team's turn. They were led by Jerry Giesler, the top defense attorney in Los Angeles and his partner, Robert Neeb. And their star witness? Tamar's mother, Dorothy Barb. The LA Times reported, quote, the mother admitted with a shake of her head that she wouldn't believe the girl under oath. She added that the girl for many years has made charges that men have molested her. The defense team attacked Tamar's credibility and when they cross examined Tamar herself, the Times reported that they, quote, lashed out at the complaining witness, terming her a pathological liar. The tactic paid off because on Christmas Eve of 1949, another Times headline read, Acquittal won by doctor on Morrill's case. It reported, after the jury announced its decision, freeing the physician. Dr. Hodel remained in the courtroom to shake the hands of several jurors as they left.
2: I was 13 or 14 when I first heard, and Mom never went into any details. It was just, your father was accused of having sex with Tamar. She never came right flat out and said to me that it happened. I'm convinced it absolutely happened. You don't have three witnesses present and testifying to something like that. If it didn't happen. I mean, it's incredible, you know, three percipient witnesses present during the sex acts. Two of them testified, the other refused out of fear. And Tamar, of course, was a good witness. And uh, he beats the case.
4: I mean, it boggles my mind that, <laughs> I mean, we've always been told that he paid off everybody and that's why he was acquitted. It's not for lack of evidence or lack of anything. I mean, you know, that's another part of the mystery, too. Like, we always thought, oh, he had so much money to burn. Or he just knew the right people, too, because he had shit on all kinds of people in L.A.
3: Yeah, he had them all in their pocket. Right. In his pocket. At 14 years old, being on trial and somebody accusing you of being a pathological liar... In your psyche, I mean, you are just a child and these are grown-ups telling you that this is what you did and you said this and this is not true. You might just start to actually believe that, right? It has haunted our family for generations and generations and generations. I have a hard, I have a real hard time talking about it because I can't comprehend it. Tamar's mother's testimony
4: was powerful in branding her daughter a pathological liar. But there was another moment in court that seemed to sway the jury, one that painted Tamar as someone who wasn't rooted in reality. And it was written about in the Los Angeles Mirror on December 17, 1949. Defense attorney Robert Neeb, while cross-examining Tamar, announced that she had told a rumor named Joe Barrett in the Franklin House, quote,
7: My father is the murderer of the Black Dahlia. My father is going to kill me and all the rest of the members of this household because he has a lust for blood. He is insane.
8: crank up that radio let me tell you a
5: story
4: before we finish this episode we have one other piece of information that we found out in doing this podcast you might have wondered about the unusual name Tamar well as it turns out George Hodel didn't pluck this name out of thin air There was a famous California-based poet in the 20s and 30s named Robinson Jeffers. Jeffers has fallen into obscurity, but in 1932, he appeared on the cover of Time magazine. Jeffers wrote a particularly dark poem, which was republished the very same year Tamar was born, 1935. It was about a young girl who seduced her brother and became pregnant by him the girl also discovers that her father had an incestuous relationship with his sister. She then sets out to burn the house down and destroys her family. The name of this girl and the poem is Tamar. But that's not all. In a separate poem, Jeffers writes about a man who has a wife named Gnaeus. Naeus is Tamar's middle name. Naeus tempts her husband to make love to a woman whose body the sun has kissed brown. The name of that girl and that poem is Fauna.
3: on the next episode of Root of Evil.
2: I'm on the phone and Tamar and I are having these long conversations. But one of the first things she says to me is, well, you know, our father was a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. And I'm saying, Tamar, where is this coming from?
3: We'll discuss how Steve Hodell began his 20-year journey into George Hodell's mind. It was just like one of
2: these kind of flash moments where you, this is it, this is why he did it.
4: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Root of Evil, the true story of the Hodel family and the Black Dahlia.
1: Root of Evil is an eight-episode series produced by C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, in partnership with TNT.